Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, how are we this morning? Good, man. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'd love to meet you. I'm hanging around over in this area after the service. Welcome to CBC. We are in a different kind of sermon series. Normally, we march through some scriptures. This sermon series is all about questions you guys sent in a couple months ago. We have about 175 of them, give or take, and we're dealing with it in five weeks. And we kind of grouped them in categories. And, and we're going to do a season three of our podcast to answer the ones we don't get to. So today, we're going to try and knock out about five of them. And it's going to be a little segmented, but I'm going to do my best to, to bring it all together at the end. Because the point of what we're doing is simply trying to convey that, that God cares about our everyday. So, so often in churches, we talk about heaven one day. We talk about abstract theological concepts that are good for us. But sometimes... Real people don't see that God is real every single day in how we live our lives. And so the next couple weeks and the last couple have been is an opportunity for us to simply say that God is here. For us to talk about things like evil in the world. For us to talk about things like we did last week when people we know and love don't know and love Jesus anymore. How do we deal with that? Next week we're going to talk about sexuality a little bit. The week after that about politics. How do we deal in the world that we live in with the faith that we hold dear? And so today we're going to talk about mental health. But before we get there, uh, we have a phrase that we use each week at CBC. We say the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What that means, just to remind us, is that we come from a very critical culture that mostly is critical because we're prideful and we're insecure. And we need to put others down so that we're put up in a place that we like ourselves more. And what in this space what we're doing is putting aside criticalness for criticalness sake and simply asking us to ask the question, God is here and he's speaking to you this morning, will you hear it? The Holy Spirit is moving through the scriptures this morning, will you listen? And so we begin just by changing our focus from a critical world to one that asks the question, what is God doing in me? How is he convicting me to show me more of his goodness and his beauty and his grace this morning? That's why we ask the question. It's a shift from our attitude out there to in here. And so we start just by praying. I'll lead us in one. I'll ask you for comfortable, say a, a quick prayer. And let's just ask God and the Spirit to move in mighty, beautiful, grace-filled ways inside of our souls this morning as he convicts us. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are, that, that we can come to this place and remember what's bigger and better than a culture that revolves around me, a culture that revolves around the individual. Today as we talk about an issue of mental health, Holy Spirit, just speak to us. Show us how God loves all kinds of people today. If you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to speak and to move and to convict your spirit this morning that we might see more of God. As you pray for me too, that God might use the preparation like Andy said and just use the scriptures to show us a bigger, better picture of God, to show us how God cares for all kinds of people.
pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, so I'm, I'm coming into this morning fully admitting to you that I know two things to be true. One, if I teach as long this week as I did last week, kids' men's staff's going to walk out the building, okay? That's one. Uh, t- two, um, I am way out of my depth this week. This question that we got is about what the Bible says about mental health. And there are people that study this all of their lives. I am a pastor. One time when I started being a pastor, it was 13 years ago. I was a pastor at middle school students here. I don't think I was called a pastor yet. I was a director because let's be honest, if you met me, you would have been like, that fits. So I was a director and this mom came forward and said, hey, we're going through a divorce. Can you counsel my kid? And I thought, I'm supposed to say yes because I'm a pastor, but I don't know what I'm doing. And so I said yes, and, and we met for a few months. And then I finally realized I have no training in this. Like I, I took a class in seminary on it, right? But I, I have no deep, filled training in mental health and the study of mental health. And so I say that to say this. If you're a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist today, please don't get angry with me. <laughs> My understanding of the topic is very, very limited. It's not going to be an in-depth look at. You might come to me afterwards and quote the DSM-5 and tell me how I got it wrong, and that is just fine. My point and purpose this morning, seriously, is just I think that we need to be a church that talks about this more. I, I think we need to be a culture that talks about this more. Because I don't know how you grew up, But I grew up in kind of the don't ask, don't tell culture of mental health, which is if you're dealing with something mentally, just work on something physically and that'll make your mental better or better yet, just ignore it and maybe it'll go away. Very Tin Cup-esque. It's a big golf weekend. You guys seen the movie Tin Cup? Love that movie? I'm going to spoil the ending a little bit. Don't get mad. It was made in the 80s, just like me. Tin Cup um, was a movie about a golfer who had more talent than anybody. But he had some mental issues in, in, to overcome. And because he didn't, it turned out to be the downfall of what would have been the highlight of his career. I think the case in point is, back then and even now a little bit, we don't talk about it as much as we should. But let me give you some stats that kind of blow me away. Before the pandemic, Johns Hopkins and the National Institute of Mental Health revealed that in a given year, one in five, one in five in America experienced clinical levels of depression, anxiety, and or diagnosable mental health disorders. After the pandemic, this number went to one in three. It almost affects a third of the population. Nearly one in five Americans live with an anxiety disorder in any given year. 15 million adults have social anxiety disorders. 19 million have a phobia. 7.7 million have PTSD. And over 16 million Americans are living with a major depressive disorder. Mental illnesses exist in every demographic, regardless of age, ethnicity, income, or gender. 10.6% of American youth suffer from major depression right now. 90% of people who die of suicide showed at least one sign of mental illness before they died, according to friends and and family members. Since 1999, the suicide rate in America has risen 35%. It's the leading cause of death in teenagers 16 to 32 years old. Mental health disorders drive Americans to emergency rooms more than any other cause outside of childbirth. It's estimated that $193 billion in the United States economy is lost in earnings each year because of mental illness. And depression is the overall leading cause of disability in the United States. Look, I say that to say it clearly is an issue we're facing as a culture. And so I think it's a good question to ask, what does the Bible say about it? 
And for good and for bad and for maybe none of the above, I grew up in a culture where we really didn't talk about it. And so today what I want to do is simply have a conversation. And I'm going to tell you my goal at the beginning. Like I said before, it's just to have a conversation. I do not, I do not, I do not have all the answers. I cannot fix your anxiety today. I cannot fix your depression. I cannot fix your doubt. I cannot fix other mental illnesses. I can't do it. But I wonder this morning, really easy goal for me as a pastor preacher, I wonder if simply the win is just we talk about it more. So that's what we're going to do. And we got about five or six questions in about this uh, around the same theme. And so we're going to group them in that theme. We're going to talk briefly about where we see it in Scripture, just so we can go from there. It gives us the same page to start on. And then we're going to talk about some questions people sent in around, what about depression and joy in Jesus? What, what about anxiety? Because that's a big player in our culture right now. And then finally, what, what about doubts? Because it's kind of the same vein of conversation. We have doubts about our faith that start in our mind and work themselves out. And is God real? Is he not real? Why do I have doubts? If I keep having doubts, do I need to ask more questions? I think they all kind of fit and flow in the same category. So let's start with where do we see, where do we see uh, mental health in the scriptures? <laughs> you know how many words there are in Hebrew and Greek for mental health? Zero. Let's go home, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're at. There's really not one, but you've got to dive a little deeper. And maybe that's why we don't have Bible studies on it. And maybe that's why there's not right now media series on mental health is because there really isn't a place in Scripture. It's not one of the Beatitudes. Get your mind right, then you'll be good with God. That's not like the 11th, you know? We don't have this theme in Scripture that's, that's really exegetical where we can talk about, like, this is the place you go to and see about mental health. But here's what we have to do is we have to ask the question, what is the scripture for, for it to help us? And and look, the scripture is so good and so beneficial. It's the middle name of our church. We believe it's God's inspired word, but it's not some things. It's not the beginning and end of all morality. It's not the beginning and end of all truth. It has a lot of truth in it, but one plus one is two isn't in there, you know? The scripture is not primarily a history book. It has history in it. It's not a science book. It has some science in it. The scripture primarily, and you've got to get this right, is the telling of God's story to redeem and rescue his most prized creation. The scripture tells the story of God chasing after his people, and it tells it through individuals and through cultures and through kings and through Jesus. It culminates there. So while it has all of those other things, if we make those other things the point and purpose of Scripture, we miss Scripture. I can play this out really easily. If you think the point of Scripture is to prove that God created the world in seven actual days, well, then you've missed the point of Scripture. That might be true. That might not be. That's not the sermon. The point is simply that's a foray into God saying, I created all things, and I'm going to redeem all things. So we have to understand That just because there's not a Bible verse on mental health doesn't mean God doesn't care about mental health. Just because there's not a Bible verse or a word in the Greek or Hebrew about, uh, you know, bipolarism or depression or anxiety doesn't mean that it's not true. Because the Bible is written to and through cultures, and they did the best they could to convey the truth through that. Let me give you a joke that I think is super corny, but I love it, all right? Uh, A story is told about a little boy who was asked by his teacher, where is your heart? He responded, my heart is where I sit down. The teacher was surprised and asked, how did you get that idea? And the boy responded with, every time I do something good, my grandmother pats me down there and says, bless your heart. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Love it. I am getting older and I can say those jokes and mean them. Somebody a couple weeks ago uh, had somebody ask somebody at our church like, hey, what's your church like and how old is your pastor? And this person said, he's 38, to which the other person responded, oh, not that young. (laughs) 
<clears throat> awesome. I just had to, every time I said dad joke, now I can own it, you know? I, I, I use that because in the scriptures, an example of talking about something without knowing all the things about things is the heart. So, so in the Hebrew, for example, they didn't have a word for brain. Do you know why? They didn't know you had one yet. They had all of these phrases they would use with language they had to talk about concepts they couldn't necessarily flesh out yet. For example, when it talks about um, uh, the brain, it uses the word heart. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Proverbs 2.10, wisdom enters the mind. They did not have a phrase for a brain yet. So they would enter in these, these ideas with language that they knew existed, like heart. It, it says in, um, in, in, in uh, uh, Psalm 69.20, Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. They're just really sad, and the best way they know how to phrase it is that my heart is broken, even though it's not really broken. They use the language they had to describe the things they couldn't describe. It's kind of like when you ask a kid deep theological questions. One of my favorite ways to explain the atonement, a friend of mine said this to me years ago, the atonement is God taking all of our sins. That's nitty and gritty and nuanced, and it's pretty complicated to understand for a five-year-old. And a parent was talking to her daughter, and her daughter asked about the atonement, and she said, Jesus took all your spankings, right? And I, I love that. Is there some theological problems with it? Sure, but I'm not going to be a jerk. I thought it was really great. We use the language that they have to explain things that are hard for us to explain. The writer of Revelation did it when he saw heaven. It's a first century man that didn't know how to describe things thousands of years in the future. And so he used the words he could to describe things the best he could. When he talks about purple and he talks about streets of gold, it's because that's the most wealth he could have ever imagined. So he described it in the most opulent terms he could have used. The point is this. Just because they didn't have a word for it doesn't mean they didn't have an awareness of mental health in the scriptures. You see it time and time again in the Old Testament. We're going to get there in a second. In the Old Testament, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he does the pinnacle feat of his prophetic career. And then a couple days later, he says, God, kill me. I shouldn't be alive. I'm not worth it. Nebuchadnezzar in the story of Babylon literally starts thinking he's an animal for seven years. There's an actual psychological term for men and women who believe they're animals and start eating grass. This is what happens to him. Paul, time and time again, talks about going in these states of deep, dark sorrow and depression. Read Psalm 40 and you'll listen to people talk through what it's like to literally be down in the depths of creation, in the depths of experience. Psalm 23, right? So I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or I walk through the darkest valley. I think this man here is experiencing some deep depression, and the only way he can describe it is the darkest valley, because to him, that means I walk so isolated and so alone, I don't see help from anywhere or anybody. And so if you ask somebody in that world to describe depression, he'd probably call it the deepest valley. I think we see evidences for mental health all throughout the Old Testament. But I don't know if the church in the last hundred years has done a great job talking in and through it. And not to bore us with philosophy, but I think it's a post-enlightenment problem. So in the Enlightenment, it happened in the 17th century, 18th century. In the 17th century, a guy named Rene Descartes came on the scene, and he said, he said this phrase, I think, therefore, I am. And that kind of started this movement that's known as the Enlightenment, which basically started us believing that our best way forward as a human race was through science, logic, and reason. 
And what that did fundamentally in our culture was it divorced the things of the metaphysical world, spirituality, from the things of the physical world, logic, science, reason. And it bifurcated these two completely different in their mind fields. And so it left one place responsible for the things we can see, science, scientists, and it left pastors and mystics responsible for the spirit. And it separated the two. I don't know when you read the Old Testament if they ever would have separated the mind, the will, the emotion, the body, the spirit, the soul. And so I think what we have to recognize and realize is that when we talk about the history of mental health in our culture as a church, I think that we are more influenced by the enlightenment maybe than the scriptures. We think it's maybe not our conversation, but I think the Old Testament talks about it. I think the New Testament talks about it all the time. It wasn't always this way where we didn't talk about mental health in uh, the spiritual realm. In 1 Peter 1, therefore preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Finally, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I think a few hundred years ago, we had this idea that our best way forward was science, logic, and reason. And because of that, we separated the soul from the things of the body. And I don't think that's true. And what that did for us was to think maybe then we saw the fall of man, the pain of sin, through physical things and maybe not mental things. What I think the Bible does is make a really strong case that just like our bodies fell in the fall, so did our minds. What I think the Bible does is speak into the brokenness of humanity as, as something God came to redeem and restore. And that means all the ways that we act and think and feel and be. I think when Jesus talks about redeeming and restoring, it's about the whole person. And, and, and before the Enlightenment period, you had people that wrote about it and knew it. So John Calvin, one of the foremost theologians that shaped our understanding of theology today, in the middle of the beginning of his institutes in 1500, wrote, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of these two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and give, gives birth to the other. He inexplicably ties our mental health to our physical health to our spiritual health. Back, the Anglicans still do it, but they had a, a title for priests, for uh, rectors called, called curates. And in the Latin, it literally means care of the souls. That's what pastors were known as in the 15s and 16s and 1700s. I love that we have some Anglicans that, that office here, and I asked them this week, I said, do you guys still use this term? And they said, yeah, we do. I love that idea that, that a pursuit of Jesus, pastors, and we all have pastoral abilities, the pursuit of Jesus is us caring for the souls of people, not just the bodies, not just the pain we feel uh, externally, but the stuff we think about and feel internally. I just think that we need to have this conversation because clearly I think it's evident in Scripture, and we don't talk about it enough. That Jesus came to redeem all of us, not just some of us. That the physical is a manifestation oftentimes of the mental. I think that sometimes we separate those two things and they shouldn't be separated. So, so we start from there. And then we ask the question, 
what does it mean for us? If God came to redeem all of us, mind, spirit, emotion, how does the Bible talk about the different parts of us? So one person asked this question. Did God create us with spirit, soul, and body? If so, how do we differentiate soul and spirit? It comes from this verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and your whole soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the scriptures talk about a person, they oftentimes use three different terms to do it. They talk about body, they talk about soul, and they talk about spirit. You see in this one verse. And when it talks about body, just to be succinct, it literally means like taste, touch, smell, see, the physical attributes that we have together. When it talks about soul, though, it's a little different. When we think soul, sometimes we think that soul is that immaterial part of us that gets released at death. That's not true. That's not Bible. That's Plato. He thought that it's kept trapped inside of you, and when you die, you get sprung free because all material is bad. It's Platonic thought. That's not biblical thought. When the scriptures talk about soul, there's a Hebrew word called nefesh. It's used 700 times. It means more than just your physical attributes, but all you are as a person. When it's used throughout the Old Testament, this idea of soul talks about how you are a, a soul because of all the ways that God has formed you. So it, it, it goes beyond just the physical attributes of the body, and it starts to include things like your emotions and your will and the way that you think. So we get into the intangibles of not just stuff I can see, but the stuff I can't see that make you, you. When you talk about this word in the Old Testament, if you were a murderer, the Bible says that you were a soul slayer. If you were a kidnapper, it said that you were a, a soul stealer. In the creation narrative, humans and animals are called a living soul, and a dead person is called a dead soul, meaning that it's all the things that make you, you, when we talk about soul in the Old Testament going into the New Testament. And so the body is your physicality. The soul is all the things that make you you outside of your physicality. And the spirit is the thing that God breathed into us that we might look like and connect with him. The spirit is the way that we deeply connect with a God. Who is spirit? Don't forget that God doesn't have fingers and toes, God the Father. Those are anthropomorphisms that get us to understand a God that we can't understand. So the body is our physicality, the, the soul is all the other things that make us whole, and the spirit is that gift which God gave us in the beginning so that we might connect with, we might connect with the one whose image we bear. And so when we talk about mental health issues, I think it's important to recognize that the Bible talks about these things in depth and often. It's not just one time, it's throughout the Old and New Testament. And so again, I go back to the point and purpose of today. It simply allows me to have more space to have these conversations. It allows me, in a church setting or any other, to feel freedom to talk about how I'm feeling, to talk about what I'm thinking, and to know that God cares about that. Let's move on to some practical side, application side. Somebody asked, how do we fight depression even though we know we should be filled with the joy of the Lord? I mean, that's just a tough question. You know why? You know that's tough? Because every time you ask it, you feel like you failed again, <laughs> you know? Every time you ask, you're like, I just didn't do it again. How do we fight depression even though we should be filled with the joy of the Lord? I think the first thing we do is we recognize it for what it is. And when we say depression is not sinful, it is a significant outworking of sin in our world. Does that make sense? It's like I wouldn't tell somebody with cancer, like, you sinful person. <laughs> you know, I'd say sin exists in our world. Uh, again, you can go to Kings if you want to. 
in Elijah when he just delivered his people and beat their God and then he gets back to himself and he gets alone. He says, oh Lord, this is 19 verse four, oh Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. If you read commentaries and uh, you read people that talk about Elijah, they would probably put him in the bipolar camp. <laughs> They'd say he had severe highs and then he had severe lows right afterwards. We don't describe him like that. I don't think we're comfortable with that kind of conversation. I think when you look at even Jesus in the garden, he said, my soul is deeply grieved. When he said deeply grieved there, it doesn't just mean I'm sad. Literally, that word in the Greek means I'm so sad that my life might end. That is an oppressive sadness. And I say that to say this. If Jesus felt it because he felt the things we feel, we can feel it too. And I say that to say this, that if Jesus felt it, we can give ourselves freedom in expressing when we feel, those, when we feel depressed. Jesus didn't stay there. <laughs> but, but I think feeling incredibly sorrowful is part of the human conditions. And for some people, it lasts a minute or two or a day or a week or a year. And so I think with all of this, getting professional help is a good idea. But, but, but also, I think when we have these conversations, it's important for us to understand that when we talk about joy of the Lord, I, I like saying joy in the Lord too. I don't know if we've done a great job as Christians of being honest with people. We're getting better. And what I mean by that is like, there's a stigma and it's breaking and I'm glad it's breaking that if you're a Jesus follower, like you're happy all the time, you know? You're never sad or sorrowful. You never doubt. You never don't trust. And I think for a long time, when we don't tell people who we are honestly, they don't see an honest depiction of God. And, and so when we have these conversations about depression, when we say joy in the Lord, I think it's important for us to know that we can be sad and still be joyful at the same time. I can be tragically heartbroken, but it doesn't have to dent my confidence in God's goodness that's bigger than my heartbreak. So when we say joy in the Lord, it reminds me that I can be sad and happy, sad and joyful, I should say, at the very same time. It's the nuance of the human condition. So, so when we ask the question about how do, how do I deal with depression and at the same time deal with the fact that I'm supposed to have joy in the Lord, those can exist at the same time. I just want to say that. Maybe sometimes it's just what we need to hear. Now, now Jesus in the garden doesn't stay there. He does a couple things. I'll give a couple suggestions, but um, how do we fight depression? Again, very not clinical. <laughs> I think the first thing we can do as a church is be more honest about it with who we are with how we're dealing, with how God's moving in our life, with how we're disappointed with how God's moving in our life, with what makes us sad. I think it's a start. I think two other things we can do about depression is, uh, man, now more than ever, I, I think we really need to guard our heart. And I know that's a Christian like phrase that's on coffee mugs, so I, I don't love it, but, but the phrase means something that's really great. It means that you need to be careful about what you're letting in because it's shaping you and it's forming you. And now more than ever, more things are fighting for your attention. I can give stats on stats on stats of how when people give up, we'll just use social media because I love to pick on it. When people give up social media, actually depression and anxiety goes down, not up. A stat done two months ago in the UK where they did it with a bunch of different people and they noticed that their anxiety lessened after they gave up TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook for one week. They went from eight hours a day to 27 minutes a day on it. And look, I don't think there's anything magical about those things. I think it's just us recognizing that what we let in affects us. So when we talk about depression, I think the place that we need to start and anxiety in a second is what are we looking at and why are we looking at it and how is it forming us? It's a battle of our minds. That's why in the Old Testament, 
when they walked around after battles? They said, hey, build some stones here. So every time you walk by this moment, every single time, you're going to remember God's goodness because things are fighting for you to define goodness by uh, what they are. Things are fighting for your idea of what goodness is is a better way to say it. And God says, write the things down, put the things down that always remind you that I'm good. So nothing else can be as good as me. And so I think we start by asking the question, what are we letting into our lives? I love in the Elisha example, do you know what God did with Elijah when he says, I think I want to die, when he goes in this depressive state? It, it, right next to it, in the verses afterwards, it, it talks about God doing the, you know, the whisper moment, <laughs> and then he feeds him, when God wasn't in the fire, and the flood, and the earthquake. You know what God does with, an oppress, with the depressed Elijah? He says, take a nap, get some food, and I'm going to speak to you, Right? So I, I, I'm not saying that food solves everything, but mo- most things, guys. <laughs> I mean, most things. I think what it does there is it ties this thing that we forget. Our physicality is deeply linked with our mentality. And you can't divorce those two because that's how God made us. So the Bible's talking about. I had a prof in college who, he was a hermeneutics preaching prof. And he would say every single semester, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. I tell my wife that every afternoon. She says, no, <laughs> no. I think we need to remember the connection between the physical and the mental. Um, I think you see Jesus do that often when he literally goes away and gets by himself and rests. So what do we do when we talk about joy of the Lord and depression? I think we remember who God really is. I think we understand those exist at the same time. And I think we take whatever steps we can physically and emotionally and mentally to to remind ourselves of what real good is. And that's what God has done for us. Because it's so easy to forget. That's what pain makes us do. Forget. Another question someone asked is, what does the Bible say about anxiety? These are all full sermons that I'm giving to you in about seven minutes, all right? But what does the Bible say about anxiety? I think anxiety is one of the single greatest causes for uh, mental health problems in our culture right here, right now. Mostly because we don't live in the real world. We live in the world that everybody wants us to believe is real. (laughs) And so it drives anxiety up in and through you. In Matthew, it says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. <laughs> You're like, that's not helping me much. Thank you very much. Uh, got to find worry there. There's a difference between worry and fear. And the word worry there is really over-concern in the Greek. And, and so there's a difference between worry and fear. Because if it says, don't worry, and I interpret worry as fear, then man, I'm breaking this all the time, and I'm feeling worse and worse and worse about myself. Fear is there simply because you care for something. I love what I think Max Lucado says it about fear. Fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. One of the first times I remember feeling fear in my life, I was, I think, eight years old. And you're thinking, Charlie, didn't feel fear till eight? No, I was a pretty dumb kid. And I was playing coach pitch baseball for the first time. I was a small kid. I mean, seriously undersized. I was probably four foot tall and like 68 pounds. And everybody else was, you know, 5'2 and 120. And I remember wanting to quit baseball, which I loved because I was afraid of this ball being thrown at my face. And I had this Jamaican coach, and he came up to me. He said, Char- I'm not going to do the accent. I was going to, but then you'll make fun of me, and I'm afraid of you. I'm not going to. He said, Charlie, and he put this little ball down next to me, and he said, how can something this small do damage to something as big as you? And I said, have you heard of a bullet, man? <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid of the ball. I'm afraid of the guy throwing the ball, because I don't know where it's going. And he's nine. He doesn't either, <laughs> you know? It's this idea that what we're afraid of kind of in some ways is good for us because it shows us what we care about. I fear sometimes for my kids. 
and for my wife and for our church and for my friends and for my family. What we have to talk about is the relationship between how much space we give fear in our lives. The, the Bible talks about fear actually being good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Talking about this idea that fear is good for us because it drives us in the right direction. The problem when we talk about fear and anxiety is when fear takes over or the overconcern moves out of the hypothetical and into the real and then drives our decisions. Fear is an appropriate concern for what we can't control. Anxiety is an uncontrolled and unchecked fear that overwhelms us and takes control of our lives. That's what we need to worry about. We quoted it last week, but Luther says, you can't keep birds from flying over your head. You can keep them from building a nest in your hair. It's the idea that I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to have thoughts of my kid hurting themselves or thoughts of what's going to happen one day when, they, when my, my daughter, when she's a teenager, doesn't think I'm like the coolest guy ever. I'm going to have those moments. That's not going to happen. I'm going to have those moments. But when I do, it's my choice to dwell or not dwell on those things. That's why the scripture talks so much about what you dwell on matters. Dwell on the things that are better, that are from above, that are God-given, and it will shape how you are feeling and believing. I think anxiety does a couple things. I think, one, anxiety can absolutely show us what we trust. It shows us what we trust. If I have anxiety about the recession, if I have anxiety about my retirement, I think in the end, if that's overwhelming me, then what am I actually trusting? I love what John Mark Comer says about anxiety. He says, anxiety is temporary atheism forgetting who's in control. And that, that passage in Matthew 6 is all about God's goodness and God's provision and God being in control. It's all about how God acts that we don't see. And so he's saying in this moment, anxiety can lead to, uh, anxiety can lead to show us what we actually trust. And it's a moment for us to stop and ask the same question. And, and to not let anxiety take over simply is taking our thoughts more captive and knowing the God that we trust is trustworthy. I, I think too, in terms of practical application, if we want to get out of a state of anxiety, not just focus on the right things, but worship the right thing. I think a cure for anxiety is worship. Because worship reorients our perspective around what's rightful and good. That's why in that same passage in Matthew 6, it says, don't worry, don't you know the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? And at the end of this story, it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The writer is saying, you don't want to worry about the little things anymore? Put God first, and that will reorder and realign all your other fears. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Worship reminds us that God's everyday graces are greater than our everyday anxieties. And then the Bible clearly speaks about what we do after that is we just pray. We, we cast our cares to God because we know that he actually cares about it. So again, I don't have a, a red pill that's going to cure your anxiety, but, but I can say a couple things in the scriptures that help. Or worship the right thing and Give it to God as much as you can and, and remember that he's been good to you and don't let anxiety overtake you because God is good and better and bigger and greater. And then finally, I got this question. What does the Bible say about doubting yourself and your faith? Man, I, I don't think we doubt enough. I know that's, that's a weird thing for me to say. Barna did a, stat, a study and they said 40% experienced doubt and worked through it. 20% of us have doubts right now, and 35% say they haven't experienced doubt. But I doubt that a little bit, you know? I think thinking people doubt and doesn't have to be scary. Socrates said this, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. Uh, love that right now. That's going to be the politics talk in a couple weeks. <laughs> you know that? 
I love what Oz Guinness says. Anyone who believes in anything will automatically know something about doubt. And Charles Spurgeon says, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. To, to condense a lot to a very little, I think doubt doesn't have to be the sign of a weak faith. It's a sign of an inquisitive faith. I think the opposite of doubt is in faith, it's certainty. I think we need to create a culture, this is what this series is for, we need to create a culture where doubt is accepted and doubt is lauded, if we doubt in the right way. Leslie Newbegin writes like this, he says, faith is the courage to confidently affirm beliefs which can be doubted. And so, I want to say this to people that doubt, good for you. <laughs> and then I want to say doubt the right way. There's a wrong way and a right way. We talked about uh, last week that we're going to uh, doubt in a way that, that doubts forward. In, in his book, um, Doubting Toward Faith, Bobby Conway talks about it. And he says, you need to doubt forward in a way that assumes God's goodness and wants to find out God's goodness. I think that when we doubt, the way we do it matters. And, and, and when, when you look at the scripture so often, when people doubt, like, let's go to Thomas. He's the key example we have. Doubting Thomas, Jesus raises from the dead, and this guy says, I don't think I believe it. I mean, I cannot fault that man for doing it. You know, we give him a hard time, but he made the only rational response at all these people. He says, I haven't seen him. Guys, I can't just believe that for the first time ever, somebody didn't actually stay dead. I would be Thomas. You know what God does in that moment? He shows up again to Thomas, and he says, hey, man, you said you need to touch my side. Come, come and touch it. And I think we read that, like Jesus is one-upping the dude, like, come and touch it. No, you said you had to get over here right now. And Thomas is like, I don't need to. But, but I think Jesus is saying, no, no, I want you to. You know where God meets us in our doubts? In our doubts. It's a beautiful reminder that God, that Jesus leads with love, not condemnation. But oftentimes, because we're built on shame-based cultures and we throw shame around like it's currency, we, we believe that God acts the same way. And just for us simply to know that God leads with love, especially in our doubts, is a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to remember. And so what do we do uh, when we doubt our faith? I think we say, great, let's doubt the right way. I think we ask good questions in communities that trust and know God. I think we, we doubt forward, believing in an understanding that God is still good and still will be good. I think he, we create spaces and places where you can doubt freely and openly. And we trust God in the middle of it. I think it's what we have to do. I think it results in deeper, more sustainable faith. So we'll end with, with this. The, the one thing I think all these have in common, mental health and anxiety and depression and doubt, is, do, do you know what they do to us, all three of these? All three of these isolate, all of them. When you're depressed, oftentimes it's talked about how you feel no joy, and you won't move, you'll sleep all the time, you'll be alone in a dark room. When, you, when you're anxious, it often causes paralysis of action. And when you doubt, we've created a culture where I can't tell anybody because they then might not think I believe in good things anymore. I, I think these three together, all of them, create a culture of isolation. The problem with that is over the last couple years, we have seen more than anything else that cultures of isolation kill people how God designed them to live. That we are made to live for and with one another. That's why at CBC we believe you can't do life alone. He said, I, I don't have the answers to these questions. I do know that one thing that can help us is if we come together more often and remind one another that you're okay, that you are loved, and that you're not alone. Whether you're depressed or whether you're anxious or whether you're doubting your faith. I love what Bonhoeffer says about it. 
the prisoner, the sick person, the Christian living in the diaspora recognizes in the nearness of fellow Christians a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. It, it means that as we have a conversation about mental health and depression and anxiety and doubt, maybe the role of the believer isn't to give all the answers or to fix, it's simply to show up, to have a conversation and to say you're not alone. As somebody who is not a counselor, who did not study for this very much, who is just trying to love people and show people Jesus well, I'm reminded that's exactly what Jesus did for us. I think we need to be people that have conversations about things that maybe we didn't talk about before. And that's maybe the beginning of it. It's funny. Now we are actually having more conversations about mental health. I brought up Tin Cup at the beginning. Uh, now most professional golfers have on their staff full-time sports psychologists, you know, because they need it because it's a really tough sport. I think that most, most churches that I know of that I really love have counselors either on staff or we have a list of counselors we'll, counselors we'll send you to if you're having a rough go and we believe in it and we champion it. But the world around us is having this conversation. Uh, one of the, the better ad campaigns in the last year was by Jansport. It was targeted towards kids, the backpack company. And they had uh, a whole campaign on mental health because they know how it's affecting students. And they said, and I love this, if you're not sharing it, you're carrying it. And the hashtag was lighten the load. It's a depiction of what it could be if we talk about those things that maybe we haven't talked about before. If we actually are the community that God intended us to be. Because Jesus said, hey, don't keep all your stuff to yourself. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. That means it's a recognition that we need help. It's a willingness to talk to others about it. Like I said, today's just, the whole goal is to have a conversation and to encourage more. So we'll end with this verse from Galatians. Talking about how we love well and live well with one another. Paul writes and says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Might we more and more carry the burdens of the people around us physically and mentally, knowing full well that God is near, that God came to redeem and restore, that that's the story of the scriptures, and he allows us to help in that restoration. Let me pray for us. Kind of thankful. I'm thankful that, that we can talk about these, these topics. That we might not have answers, but we can be present. I'm thankful that you are bigger than the problems of mental health in our country. That your goodness outruns my doubt. That your power is bigger than anybody's depression or anxiety. And that you're in control. And so this morning as we leave this place, help us be present with those around us. Maybe not with answers, just to show people that God cares. May we go forward and understand the conversations we have about questions we have about God strengthen our faith if we do it together in the right way. So Holy Spirit, give us opportunities for those moments to happen so that people might see the true goodness of God in the nitty-gritty of our everyday. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.